The Bible reading is taken from 1 Kings, chapter 16, on page 358 in the Church Bibles. So the first reading, page 358, 1 Kings, chapter 16, and starting at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. The second reading can be found on page 1235. It's from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29 on the top of page 1,235. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you, You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Just as we sit, let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that through your Spirit you still speak to the churches today. And we pray that this letter written 2,000 years ago to a little church in Asia Minor would teach us to today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's nearly 50 years since that classic spaghetti western, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, first came out. Rather showing my age here, I think, but it it is the great western of all time. And uh, it starred Clint Eastwood, and it was very clear who was good, Clint. It was also very clear who was bad, a character called Angel Eyes, because he was a nasty piece of work. And it was very clear who was ugly, Tuco, because he was ugly. It was a fairly simplistic uh, world. The good, the bad, and the ugly uh, is usually on people's lists of top 20 films and a very clear distinction it made, too, of right and wrong. Some people were very clearly in the right. They were the goodies, Clint. Others were very clearly in the wrong. They were the baddies, anyone who opposes Clint. The distinction between right and wrong is very clear, and that's why we love this genre. The great thing is with this sort of film is that the goodies always win. The trouble is, real life isn't like that. No individual is just good or bad. They're a mixture of the two. No organization is purely good or bad. No political party, no church, you and I. We're all a mixture. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian. We all can identify with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, this I do. All Christians are a mixture of good, bad, and ugly. And, of course, there's no such thing as a perfect church. You probably know that old piece of advice that is given to someone who's looking uh, when they've moved to, uh, to find a new church. If you find the perfect church, do not join it because you'll only spoil it. You won't find a perfect church anyway. But all churches are a mixture of good, bad, and ugly. And the church at Thyatira, here in Revelation chapter 2, is no exception. Just to remind you, we've had a few weeks away from this series. We're going through the seven churches in, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And um, <clears throat> I think we've got a map here just to remind you where Thyatira is. Uh, we've looked at Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, and it's as if Jesus is doing a kind of little circular tour of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we're in Thyatira uh, today. Page 1235, if you've uh, lost your place. There was a lot going on at this church, some good, some bad, and some ugly. Let's start with the good. First of all, the good. Chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, this is Jesus writing to this church, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Now, most of these letters begin with a note of praise and encouragement. And this is the most explicit praise Jesus gives to any of the churches in Revelation. This sounds like a great church, doesn't it? With five wonderful hallmarks. Love. Love for God, which is no doubt seen in love for God's people. As John says in his letter, 
whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. Faith. Faith, no doubt, manifested by their trust in God in times of difficulty. Faith in the, means peace in the storms of life. Faith, perhaps seen in their reliance on God for all their material and financial needs. Faith seen in their confidence as they met together to pray. Third mark is service. This church was tripping over one another to help each other out, giving freely of their time and their talents and their possessions and their money and their hospitality and their efforts. They loved serving one another. And the fourth mark is perseverance. No one's life is always easy. The Christian life is not always easy. And a great mark of a great church and a great Christian is that they keep going during tough times, inspired by the hope of heaven. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, talks about endurance inspired by hope. And the fifth great hallmark is growth. He says, you're doing more more now than you did at first. And there's a wonderful virtuous circle here in, in church life. The more we love one another, the closer we get, and the more we therefore want to give to each other in love. The more faith we show, the more we discover that God proves himself to be faithful, and so that we're more likely to give and to pray and know his, his peace in the storms of life. The more we serve, the more we recognize that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we experience true, true joy in Christian service. The longer we persevere, the less we'll be focused on the transience of this life with all its joys and struggles and sorrows, and the more we'll focus on heaven with its undiluted joys. As the great hymn says, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And the more we grow in all these great hallmarks of church life, the more we'll want to grow. I love being part of this church because these great qualities are all in evidence here. And I sort of feel as uh, Jesus writes to Thyatira, there's there's a lot of verse 19 at St. Michael's. I hope you're experiencing that too. I hope you're wanting to be part of it. And if you're fairly new here, I'd encourage you to get stuck in so that you can know the joy of being part of of a lovely church that, that shows itself in love, faith, service, perseverance, and growth. Thyatira was the kind of church where you walk into and immediately feel as if you belong. Perhaps it's almost like you've come home. Someone says, great to meet you. Let me introduce you to my friends. Come and sit with me. Why don't you join our home group? Do stay. Come and and have lunch with me. We're so glad you're here. It's that kind of church. Caring, sacrificial, loving. That was the good part. Now, wouldn't it be great if the letter stopped here? Unfortunately, you'll notice that there are several more verses, and Jesus has uh, to focus on something altogether much more uncomfortable, the bad and the ugly Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. One of Thyatira's great strengths also proved to be its weakness. The church's love could also be undiscerning and blindly affirming. The big problem at Thyatira was tolerance. Do you see that? Verse 20, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. This church tolerated false teaching and immoral behavior, two things that God is fiercely intolerant of. It's one of the great kind of uh, 21st century words, isn't it? Tolerance. We must be tolerant, we're told, the whole time. And if you're not tolerant, you're a bigot. But actually, Christians can't be tolerant of all things because God is not tolerant of all things. And actually, it's a, it's a logical inconsistency, isn't it? You can't say black is white because it's not. Sure, we can respect differing opinions. We can try to understand them. But we cannot give our unqualified, unconditional affirmation to every belief and every form of behavior. Because God doesn't himself. And the specific sin in Thyatira was tolerance of this lady called Jezebel. It's probably not her real name, but it's a name, Jezebel, that sends shivers down the spine of anyone who's read the Old Testament. We just had a little dip into the Old Testament, the story of Jezebel, in our first reading in 1 Kings 16. And it was the worst thing that Israel's king Ahab did was to marry Jezebel because she incited Ahab to abandon the worship of God. She introduced Baal worship to Israel. She incited uh, Ahab. She persecuted the prophets. She was greedy and grasping, if you remember the story of Naboth's vineyard. And with the Baal worship came the Asherah poles, the worship and prayer to the fertility gods. Jezebel was a byword for immorality and idolatry. It's interesting, these days it's very fashionable to give your child an Old Testament name. Have you noticed how many kind of Noah's and Joseph's there are? I've never met a Jezebel. <laughs> if you have, do tell me over coffee. I, I think not. And indeed, if you read about Jeze Jezebels in literature, are not nice ladies. And if you're thinking, if you're expecting a baby and uh, it's a girl, please don't call her Jezebel. She's not a nice lady. But in Thyatira, there was clearly this Jezebel-like woman who, if you see in verse 20, was leading people into sexual immorality and idolatry. And she clearly has an influential role in the church. She calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants, Jesus says. And Jesus' criticism of the church is, verse 20, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. 
And not only that, you're allowing a woman like that to have influence in the church. Don't tolerate her, he says. Don't dialogue with her. Get rid of her, or I will. Now, clearly, this Jezebel-like woman had influence, and she was leading people astray. Look at verse 24. Some clearly held to her teaching. Some regarded it as, quote, deep secrets. You can imagine it. She probably said something along the lines of, well, this is a mature view of Christian behavior, because, you see, she was right in the heart of the church, masquerading as a Christian. This is a mature view of the Christian life. It's time we sort of moved on. We grew up. Let's apply the faith to today's world. If we love each other, we'll accept each other, regardless of our beliefs or our behaviors. And as it talks about sexual immorality, she probably said things like, well, loving sexual relationships, so long as they're loving, they're fine outside marriage. Marriage is just an ancient construct imposed on us by others. Multiple partners? Well, experiment a bit. Live a little. So long as you love them, that's fine. Let's learn and grow together. See what works for you. Maybe great for you to be monogamous, but how about polyamory for you? Well, we're all different, says Jezebel. So let's accept one another and love each other. Because love means we tolerate one another, doesn't it? And in verse 24, Jesus calls these deep secrets Satan's so-called deep secrets. And they're as intoxicating as they are toxic. The love that is the first great hallmark of the church in Thyatira has become soft and unthinking and uncritical. And as is often the way in churches, the big danger is not so much the danger from without opposition, but the soft compromise from within. The good, the bad, and the ugly, all seen in one church. Now, Many in the church in Thyatira were great. And there's lots of great things going on there. But its generosity of spirit had been its undoing. It had made it unthinking. And it had allowed immorality and idolatry to get a foothold in the name of tolerance. And if ever there was a word of warning from the first century church in Asia Minor to the 21st century church in London... This is surely it. So in conclusion, let's notice how Jesus responds. And he does so in two ways. First with a warning and then with an encouragement. Jesus is warning. He says three things. First, he says, I know. Verses 18 and 19. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. The Jesus who knows the church is the one who, in verse 18, has eyes like blazing fire. In verse 23, he's the one who searches hearts and minds. A friend of mine who was a headmaster had this strategy when a naughty pupil was brought in. And he got a little bit of the story, but he wanted the full story. So he had sat this boy down in front of him, and he'd say to him, I know everything. You tell me what you know. Of course, it was a bluff. 
but it's a strategy that works surprisingly well. If ever you become a headmaster, I commend it to you. But Jesus really does know everything. Do you remember that collect for purity at the beginning of many communion services? Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. It's so true. And Jesus, who in verse 18 is described as the Son of God, is therefore the awesome judge. He knows. He sees our hearts. He searches our hearts. The second thing Jesus says by way of warning is is to repent in verse 21. He says, I have given her, this is Jezebel, I've given Jezebel time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. Notice that Jesus gives her time, sort of extra time, to repent. And he calls on his church, gives them time, gives us time, extra time, to repent. And he warns of judgment, verse 23, which makes for quite chilling reading, not just for Jezebel, but for her fellow people who commit adultery with her, people who follow her ways. Jesus longs for us to repent. He gives us time. He calls us to repent. The door of repentance is open. But one day that time will pass, and he says here that judgment will come. In 2 Peter chapter 3, if you're taking notes, verses 9 and 10, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's a wonderful promise that God longs for us to repent. But the very next verse says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So there is a warning here, repent. In his love, Jesus calls us to turn back to him. Warnings are signs of love. They've just put a bus stop up outside our front door. And every now and again, I hear mothers and their children on their way to school. Children often larking around on the pavement. And the other day, I heard a mother say, don't jump into the street or you'll get flattened by a car. And it's pretty sort of severe warning. Why did she say that? Because she's longing for her child to get flattened by a car? Of course not. She loves the child. She wants to protect the child. And the warning comes out of her love for the child. Third warning, hold on, verse 24 and 25. He says, now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, verse 25, only hold on to what you have until I come. There is a godly remnant in the church in Thyatira that is not infected by Jezebel and her teaching. And here Jesus encourages them and us to hold on to what you have. In other words, hold on to the teaching of the apostles. For us, hold on to this book. Don't be swayed by new teaching or modern teaching or mature teaching. Don't be conned by the contemporary teaching of 21st century Jezebels with Satan's secrets and deeper teaching. But along with the warning, 
Jesus ends with two wonderful encouragements to the one who overcomes. Verse 26, the overcomer is the one who perseveres in doing God's will to the end. The first encouragement is that if we overcome, we will share in Jesus' rule. Verses 26 uh, and 27, he says, I will give authority over the nations to the one who overcomes. And just as Jesus rules the nations, so he promises that one day we will share in that rule. Romans 8 verse 17 talks of being heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ and sharing in his glory. That is the great privilege of every Christian who overcomes, who perseveres to the end. And the second wonderful encouragement, as if the first wasn't incentive enough, is in verse 28 that God promises the overcomer the morning star. We will share in Jesus' life. Because later on in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it tells us that Jesus is the morning star. So if we will be given the morning star, God is basically promising Jesus to the Christian. Jesus, who chapter 1 tells us, is the first and the last, the living one, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. This is our God. He will be our bright guiding star, leading us through all the troubles and the temptations and the seductions of Jezebels in this life. The morning star will be our ever-present friend, our brother, our co-heir in glory. So today, we have multiple encouragements and challenges And I think this is a letter very much for for us, for any church today. Stay true. All those positives. Keep that love growing. Deepen your faith. Give yourself to service. Persevere, even in difficult times. Keep holding to the truths of this book, the apostles' teaching. Don't give in to the siren calls of Jezebel. Don't compromise even in the name of generosity or tolerance. Don't compromise. Hold on until he comes. Today's Advent Sunday. And we remember that Jesus didn't just come at Christmas 2,000 years ago, but that one day he will come in glory. Hold on until he comes. He's coming. He who has an ear, says Jesus, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.